Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. By now you know that Nathan Jones and I are your regular hosts. This series focusing on Jesus in the Old Testament was Tim's idea last year when he assumed leadership of Lamb and Lion Ministries. We've received much feedback that our program highlighting the prophetic types and even Christophanies evident throughout the Old Testament have been a great blessing to you. For the past three months, we've moved through the Torah, followed by Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Following the cycle of rebellion and punishment demonstrated in Judges when there was no king in Israel, the people clamored for a king to lead them. One of their stated goals was to be like all the other nations, with a single man to lead them. As J.R.R. Tolkien described with his one ring to rule them all, the children of Israel hoped that a single powerful king could lead them out of the quagmire of squabbles and enemy threats. Samuel served as the prophet who advised the people and acted as God's agent to anoint the first two kings of Israel. After raising up a man who looked like a king, Samuel was led to a different type of man altogether, a man after God's own heart. Today we'll hear from a warrior who has proven himself on the battlefield and in the trenches of Washington. He embodies a modern-day version of a man after God's own heart. Our guest today is Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin. General Boykin served in the United States Army for 36 years, including 13 years in the mysterious Delta Force. He was instrumental in numerous operations, including the 1980 Iranian hostage rescue mission and the Black Hawk Down incident in Mogadishu, Somalia. For five years, he was the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. Today, he serves as the Executive Vice President at the Family Research Council. General Boykin, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. It's my privilege and honor to be with you. General, I also served in the military for 34 years, but only rose to 06 or bird colonel rank. And I told my constituents when I served as a Kentucky State representative near Fort Knox, I was in the Air Force, what Andy Griffith once described as the helpers. Well, uh, I think most of us in the Army believe that all the other services are here to help us. Yeah. Well, General Boykin, you've obviously had many titles. What should we call you? Yeah, when my wife starts calling me General again, uh, you, you can call me General. Otherwise, my name is Jerry. All right. General Boykin, you've seen men at their best and their worst and on the battlefield. From that perspective, describe the young man God led Samuel to anoint to replace Saul. Yeah, you know, this was a, a, an obscure young man because remember when they were questioning his father about his sons, looking for someone to go up against Goliath, uh, they finally reached a point where they said, do you have no more sons? And, and he said, basically, well, there's the, the one out in the field with the sheep. But, uh, but he is a young man, and uh, he was a ruddy complexion, almost boy, uh, but he was God's chosen at that moment, and he rose to the occasion. He had a lot of courage, and uh, he had uh, demonstrated that when he killed the lion and the bear. General, one of the principles of the American military is the chain of command and unity of command. In other words, there should always be an ultimate decision maker who takes responsibility. Is that why the Hebrews were so eager to have a king? Yeah, I think so. And I, I, think, I think God made it very clear. Look, I'll give you a king, but you're not going to like it. And uh, that, that's something that that's the mistake we make frequently in our own personal lives. But I think that the, uh, I think the children of Israel looked around at, the, at their adversaries and they all had kings. And, uh, and I, I think that uh, in a, uh, a, a bizarre kind of way that they wanted to feel that they were equal to uh, the, the, their adversaries, the people that surrounded them. 
and uh, and at that time when they finally got uh, a king, you know, they had done pretty doggone well with a judge, with, with people appointed and anointed by God. But they asked for a king, and he gave them what they asked for, and it uh, it uh, turned out to be just what God told them. Uh, you're not going to like it. There are several incidents where David stands out as a type of Christ. In other words, while he was a pale reflection of the Messiah, he demonstrated a trait or action that foreshadowed the anointed one to come. And when David stepped forward to accept Goliath's challenge, he became Israel's unlikely uh, but blessed champion against what seemed to be overwhelming odds. He defeated the pagan antagonists and motivated the army of Israel to rout the Philistines. The boy who fought off the lions and bears with his bare hands was fearless against a giant. Where does such courage spring from? Well, just think about what uh, David said when he stood there before Goliath. He said, you come to me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the living God. Well, where does that kind of courage come from? It comes from a faith and a power higher than you or higher than anything that man can accomplish. And he had that faith, and he, he loved the Lord. And that was probably the most unique thing about him in terms of the, the kings that ultimately commanded or ruled over Israel. He was a man that loved God with all his heart, which is one of the reasons, the primary reason, it's called the man after God's own heart. Jerry, even after he was anointed by Samuel to be the future king, David exhibited extraordinary patience. How could this great leader wait while Israel was led by a man who was losing his faculties and making tragic choices on behalf of the nation? Yeah, a great question. And keep in mind that uh, David, uh, he, he was filled with the Spirit of God. David loved Jesus. I mean, he loved God. He didn't know it, but he loved Jesus as well because Jesus would come from, from his bloodline. But uh, he also knew that, that Saul was appointed by God. And, uh, and the Bible tells us, harm not my anointed. Now, this was, even though he was not a good king, he was the king that God had given them. And he gave David no instructions to, to, to harm Saul in any way. And, and when he had the chance to do that, instead of harming him, while he was fleeing from Saul, he actually, in a cave, cut off the robe, the, the, the piece of his, his, his tunic or his robe, just to let him know that he could have killed him at that particular time. So he was being patient and honoring God's choice as a leader at that time, for that moment, knowing that his day would come. And I suspect that uh, he was using that time to prepare himself in terms of thinking through what had to be done to bring the Israelites together, to make their lives better, uh, to make them one in honoring God. So um, he was a man that honored God by not harming the person that God had anointed and appointed for such a time as that. David was also surrounded by mighty men, men he could count on in a moment of crisis. Ironically, the faithfulness of David's mighty men actually contrasts with the fickleness of Jesus' followers in his moment of crisis, but points to their attainment of mighty man status through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Yeah, just keep in mind that David, uh, we call these David's mighty men, but I would call him something else. I would call him battle buddies. These were battle buddies. You and I have a military background, and we understand you, you would call it the wingman, but uh, in the, on the ground forces, we call it our battle buddy. And, that's, and, and, and these are men who are so bonded together by sharing dangers, uh, by sharing the task that they have to do, that they are willing to stand and risk their lives for each other. And they're even willing to die for each other. And, and, and that's a phrase that's used a lot, but I can tell you that I have put men in for the medals of honor and stood in the White House as their families received those medals of honor for having the courage to sacrifice their lives for a battle buddy. These were battle buddies. These were men that were bound together by a transcendent cause. And that transcendent cause was the, was the, the mission that they had. And in, in, in their cases, it was to defeat the enemies of Israel at some point. Well, Jerry, even as you say that, obviously our ultimate battle buddy is none other than Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his friends. He sacrificed himself for all who would put their faith in him. So we have no better ally, no better buddy than Jesus Christ. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and we need to understand that still today, as men especially, we need battle buddies. We need battle buddies. We need battle buddies that are going to be there when we need them. We need battle buddies that will not compromise us. We need battle buddies that we can, we can tell them when we're struggling. We can tell them when we need prayer. We can tell them when we're, when we're going through a difficult situation, and they won't compromise us. But they'll go to the Lord on our behalf. They'll intercede for us. And that's the battle buddies that we need today. And every man needs that, but very few men actually have. Jerry, I obviously agree with what you say, but that also means that each of us needs to be a battle buddy or a wingman ready to support our brothers and sisters in Christ at all times. In general, David was a great king, but he was far from perfect, right? And yet his story conveys a powerful message of encouragement to us regarding the grace of God. Who knows how many failures David had? You know, we only know about two really big failures that he had, and one led to the other. And he, he laid with with another man's wife um, and committed adultery with her, which then produced a pregnancy. And then he had that man sent to the front to make sure that man was killed in battle to cover his sins. Think about that. Every man, every man should think about that. When you get down on yourself and you, you say, well, I just, I don't want to do these things. It's like Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do. And, uh, and I don't do the things I want to do. Well, as men, especially, but everybody, every Christian, we need to remember that David did something probably far more egregious than anything that we've ever done. Yet he was still a man after God's own heart. What's that? It's a story of grace. It's a story of mercy. It's a story of God's forgiving power. And, uh, and, and we need to remember that and reflect on that because the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I think that this, this story is so powerful 
because it ends well. While scripture refers to David as a man after God's own heart, he had a tremendous blind spot that led to a disastrous moral failure. How could this tragically fallen man be held in such high esteem to the point that Gabriel promised to Mary that the Lord God will give him, Jesus, the throne of his father David? Yeah, and, and keep in mind, after that moral failure, his life became very difficult. And things began to happen within his own family that were very, very difficult for any man, especially a father. But uh, I, I think the answer to that is that David uh, knew he had failed. David still loved God. He still loved God with all his heart and probably loved God even more because he knew his sins had been forgiven in spite of the egregious nature of those sins. And, uh, and I think that David was indeed the man after God's own heart because he recognized just how glorious it was to have a forgiving and loving God that we could go to when we fail. And we as, as humans fail all the time. General, your background in the intelligence community gives you a keen understanding of the threats against the United States and our allies. While we are fixated on domestic politics and economic uncertainty, there is a rising threat against Israel that may reach a tipping point very soon. What insight can you offer regarding the possibility that Iran is on the brink of developing a nuclear weapon? I can give you the assurance that that is a true statement. They are on the brink of a nuclear weapon. In fact, it was just reported today that, uh, that uh, there is sufficient evidence now to, to validate that they are trying to enrich their uranium up to the 90% weapons grade uranium. The first 20% is the hard part. From that point on, it, uh, it, it's a, not easy, but it's a much easier process than the first one. That's what they're doing. That is what they're doing. And Iran is, and make no mistake about it, it is an existential threat to Israel. One nuclear bomb, one, just one, dropped right in the center of the country would do what Hitler couldn't do uh, in, in 10 years. Well, if David was king of Israel today, sir, how do you think he would deal with Iran and with their other proxy forces arrayed against Israel closer to the promised land? Yeah, go, I mean, we, every American, every Christian should study the history of Israel, and you should study the history of the wars in Israel, and you should study and understand how these Arab nations have come against Israel repeatedly, but they've been defeated every time, and there's no reason that they should have been defeated except for the hand of God. So what would the, what would would David do right now? I think that what you would see from David is you would see preemptive strikes. You know there is a I can't tell you exactly where it is, but uh, it, there is a part of uh, I think it's Samuel, Second Samuel, where it says David arose early in the morning and went out to meet his enemies. You stop and think about it. he went out to meet them. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He went out to meet them. And I think that's the kind of approach that, uh, that the Israelis are ultimately going to be forced to take here because I, their intelligence on Iran and the other threats around them, the other nations around them, their intelligence is incredible. They have invested a lot of time and resources into being able to collect intelligence and go back a few years and remember what they brought out of Iran and showed us in terms of the 
what Iran was doing and, and Iran's nuclear program. So I think that the Israelis are watching them very, very closely. And I think that there's going to come a, a, a point where they're going to say that's just, that's far enough, especially if the United States is not going to do anything but coddle them and try to make peace with an enemy that doesn't want to make peace, then we're going to have to do it ourselves. And that's a point at which I think you're going to see the skies filled with with uh, Israeli aircraft and you're going to see uh, big clouds of smoke in Iran. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be ugly. And, they're in, in, and Israelis are going to die as a result of it. But uh, they're going to come to a point where they have to do that unless the United States and God intervene in what's going on there. Well, Jerry, at the Family Research Council, your mission is to advocate faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture from a biblical worldview. Today, the forces arrayed against us are growing in stature and ferocity. Christianity is no longer the dominant ideology in America, and Christians find themselves playing defense as our society secularizes. How can we fight back? Yeah, what we have to do is first put on your whole armor, because this is a spiritual battle. Put on, put on the armor of God. And, and, and I know that sounds uh, rather trite, but it is absolutely what we have to do as Christians. Put on the armor of God. And, and, and every piece of that armor has a common thing, and, and it is a personal prayer life and knowing the word of God. So, so get in the word and stay on your knees. Start there. Then find a way to get involved. Get involved. Get involved through your church. Get involved uh, in your community. Get involved in what's going on in this nation and take a stand against the evil that we have brought into our country. And there is plenty of evil here. And you can you can you can fight against the killing of of unborn babies. You can fight against that. There are many ways that you can do that. You can fight against this. Uh, these uh, critical race theory and things like that that are that are just destroying our our next generation's concept of who we are as Americans, of who this country is. You can you can mentor somebody. You can get somebody, take them under your wing, and mentor them, and help bring them along. You can get involved in the activities in your church, but the thing is, you can't sit on the sidelines. There's no room for spectators anymore. General, how can our viewers connect with the Family Research Council? Yeah, go to frc.org. That stands for Family Research Council, frc.org. And uh, that's our website and you'll find uh, everything that we do. Uh, we'll, you, there are webcasts on there, the podcast on there. There's all kinds of things that, that really talk about the issues that are important to us today. We have a place here at Family Research Council that we call uh, the Center for a Biblical Worldview. And if you want to know what a worldview is, or you want to take a topic and you want to say, what would be the biblical view of that? You can go on our website, you can find those things, and we'll, and if you let us know, we'll send you a copy. It really helps you with those issues that we struggle with as, uh, as Christians. Well, General Boykin, I am so glad we were able to connect with you today. We will pray for God's blessing as you engage in this critical battle for hearts and minds. Godspeed. God bless you for what you're doing, brother.
While America is consumed with domestic politics, economic turmoil, and cultural tension, the world marches on. Our leaders wring their hands about China's rising power and Russia's menacing pressure on Ukraine, but other significant dangers in the world today have a prophetic dimension. It is an open secret that Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapon. The Iranian claim to want nuclear power for peaceful purposes is blown out of the water by their insistence that soon Israel will be wiped off the face of the earth. Americans cannot comprehend animosity so fixated on destroying another people, but the leaders of Iran, stoked by a radical Muslim ideology, are quite clear about their intentions. They condemn Israel as the little Satan, exceeded only by their nemesis, the United States, which they call the great Satan. The nationalistic ideological fervor of their hatred knows no bounds. The modern nation of Iran emerged in 1501 in the heart of the old Persian Empire. Many Iranians like to think of themselves as Persian, aspiring to the faded greatness of that bygone age. Students of the Bible realize that Persian King Cyrus was a friend of the Jewish people, and that Esther was elevated to become the queen of a Persian ruler. But now, too many descendants of ancient Persia have been radicalized. Israel has made it clear that it will not tolerate a nuclear-armed Iran. Recently, Israeli leaders have been preparing their people for a probable conflict with Iran. In all likelihood, Israel will strike just before Iran possesses a bomb, because Iran has declared its intention to use such a weapon to annihilate the Jewish state, doing in a moment what Hitler could not accomplish in years. But there is hope. The Gospel Coalition considers the church in Iran to be the fastest growing in the world. Jesus is appearing in visions to people throughout the Middle East, and hundreds of thousands of Iranians are turning away from the false religion of their leaders to saving faith in Christ. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Christian brothers and sisters in Iran. And know that this threat is simply one more sign that Jesus is coming soon. David offers one more lesson that points to God's grace and our Savior's love for us. Following Saul's death, his family was destitute. His sons were killed alongside him in the Battle of Mount Goboa. David's dear friend Jonathan was faithful to his father even as Saul became self-destructive and lashed out at those who were loyal to him. When the news of Saul and Jonathan's death arrived from Jezreel, another tragedy struck Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. His nurse panicked and fled with the five-year-old boy. As she did so, Mephibosheth fell or was dropped. He was lame in both feet from that day forward. Later, David consolidated his kingdom, reigning over all Israel and administering justice and righteousness for all his people. Feeling magnanimous, David sought for someone from Saul's household to show the kindness of God. His servant told him that only Mephibosheth was left. David sent for the son of Jonathan and invited him to eat at the king's table regularly. Recognizing the unmerited generosity of such an offer, Mephibosheth asked David, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth understood his standing before the king. He realized that he did not have anything of value to offer and could bring no honor to his lord. But David's love for Mephibosheth was not based on what the lame young man could do for him. It was unmerited, representing David's desire to honor his father and grandfather and grace. Similarly, our great God and Savior desires to lavish His love on us not because we merit it or because we can offer Him anything in return. Our Heavenly Father does so based on His amazing grace and as a manifestation of His love for our Savior. 
His love for Christ overflows into the lives of every person who trusts in Him for their salvation. Mephibosheth's name means, from the mouth of shame. Perhaps that reflected the lowly status he fell to as a crippled man whose grandfather had been rejected by God. But the name he gave his own son reflects the hope and blessing that was restored to his life by the king after God's own heart, Micah, which means, who is like God. You see, even as he demonstrated love toward Mephibosheth, David was wise enough to credit God. The kindness he extended flowed from the God he served. What about you? Have you experienced the unmerited favor of the Heavenly Father? Are you a conduit of kindness and blessing into the lives of people crushed under a burden of shame? Have you shown the kind of love that makes people around you exclaim, Who is like God? Find a Mephibosheth. Invite them to the table of our soon-returning King. Tim, many people see foreshadows of the Messiah in King David, don't they? His role as shepherd and king and man after God's own heart points directly to Jesus. But I love the example he gives of extending kindness, unmerited favor to Mephibosheth. What's a picture of God's love for us? I agree. You know, Mephibosheth recognized that he had nothing to offer the king and that he did not even deserve to sit at David's table. But David's loving kindness should be an example for all of us. And throughout our study through the Old Testament, we're obviously highlighting appearances of Jesus, whether when He appeared in human form as a pre-incarnate Christophany, or in types or symbols. But we've also highlighted human exemplars who are worthy of study as role models. You know, none of the characters of the Old Testament is without fault. Even those whose character flaws and failures are not highlighted fell short of the glory of God. But David demonstrates that God restores those whose hearts are fully devoted to Him, lifting us up when we fall. By putting our trust in Jesus Christ, He hides His face from our sins and blots out all our iniquities. He will not scorn our broken and contrite spirit if we come to Him repenting of our sin. And David is just one of the exemplars we've touched on and one of the many in the Bible. Our DVD Profiles in Righteousness offer insights and encouragement to that. We'd be happy to send it to you for a gift of $15 or more. It's worth watching over and over again and sharing with a friend. Next week, we will dive into 1 Kings. Nathan and I have a special treat in store for you as we focus on Elijah and Elisha. These two great prophets were called of God to speak into their nation as it began straying from the living God. They were filled with power as they were obedient to the Holy Spirit. As always, we hope that you will read ahead in preparation for next week's episode. And we hope you'll visit our website where we offer explanations of our key verses. And on that note, our key verses for this week are 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13 and 21 through 22 and 2 Samuel 22, 47. Until next week, I'm Tim Moore. And I'm Nathan Jones saying, look up, be watchful for our Savior and Lord who put on flesh and exemplified a man after God's own heart is drawing near. Christ in Prophecy is made possible through the faithful and generous support of viewers like you. Please consider making a donation to Lamb and Lion Ministries so that we can continue broadcasting the message of Jesus' soon return. Thank you and God bless you.